the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Thanksgiving season is once again upon us as we think of family and friends, meals and menus, and gathering together to certainly celebrate the great abundance and richness that we as Americans enjoy. Even in spite of the current economic downturn, America is still the most blessed nation on planet Earth. Now, there are plenty of books on the topic of cooking and feasting. There are certainly books on fasting and dieting, if after Thanksgiving you are inclined to lose a few pounds. Uh, But how about one? on feasting and fasting from a uniquely biblical perspective. I think they've kindly come up with a book that's never been written before. And joining me right now is the editor of this wonderful book, assembled by 34 independent writers looking at feasting and fasting toward God. The book is called The Spirit of Food and Leslie Leland Fields. Great to have you on the show with us today. Well, thanks for for having me. I'm I'm happy to be with you. You know, we talk about Thanksgiving and certainly our, our thoughts turn toward the Thanksgiving menu and getting family together and uh, celebrating this uh, uniquely American holiday. Um, Where did the concept come of sitting down and gathering the caliber of authors that you have here to talk about spiritual perspectives, I guess we'll call it, on food? Well, you know, I've been watching um, the whole sort of food movement, you know, what's been going on in the last 10 years in American culture over food. And um, it's it's been really interesting. I think that we have become as a culture, more and more interested in food, and and we know that because there's a food network, and there there are all these shows that are about um, you know cooking food, eating food. Isn't there one called Bizarre Foods or something? Oh yes, yes, uh huh. Yeah, I haven't mm-hmm. seen it, but. Um, so there's a, there's clearly just a huge fascination, a growing fascination with, with foods. But there's also a parallel um, thing going on, and that is, and, and of course they're very closely connected, and that is the whole obesity issue. So we've we've got a real fascination with food. But I I was so you know as I've watched this this going on, I've thought you know where. Where is the spiritual aspect of, of food? That 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 element, that huge element, um, is missing, and and I, I think that the time is 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 ripe. I, I hope I don't fall into food metaphors through this whole interview, but the time is ripe to start to to bring back together the spiritual part of food and the physical part of food, and to marry them, 
thought together, which is how God created food in the first place to feed us, to feed not just our bodies, but to feed our spirits and our souls as well. And, you know, it's an interesting fascination because I think for a good part of American history, uh, food was one of our great pastimes. Things uniquely American, uh, you know, your hamburgers, your hot dogs, uh, things of this sort. And in recent years, you're right, the last decade or so, it seems as if the focus on food for more of a, a gourmet aspect of it has come into center stage uh, on the American plate and palate. And I think that's a good thing. It's interesting because other cultures certainly celebrate, they, they revel in food. I think of French cooking, Italian cooking, yeah. which is my background. Yeah. Now to see sort of that, that focus on higher caliber, a higher quality of food, and all that goes with it, which is interesting because, you know, it's one thing to slap a hamburger on the, the, yeah. the, the, the grill and in 20 minutes you're eating. Um, more we're seeing interest in, in complicated recipes, recipes that take time, recipes that take a lot of love. And so we're finding, I think, here in this new book that you've edited, The Spirit of Food, a combination of those things coming together. And, and I think it's also interesting because we see so many images of food used throughout the Scripture, even, even as we talk about the body of Christ coming together at the Supper of the Lamb, that great banquet table in heaven. Strong images are used there that, unfortunately, I think uh, Americans have not quite uh, come to that realization of. No. I, you know, Craig, that is so true. We really have not paid attention, I don't think, to um, to, to food in the Scriptures and to, into all that it represents. And it is so fascinating to, to start to follow that. Even if you simply follow the word bread from the beginning of the scriptures through to the end. Um, and you know, when the, when the scriptures open, we open in a garden, and some of the first words that God says to Adam and Eve are about food. You know, here, I've given you all of this, you know, to eat. Here's what you may eat. Here's what you may not eat. And and the fall of man happens over, over food, you know. And, and really what's going on is that Adam and Eve are saying, you know, we don't want to be dependent on you to feed us. We want, to, we want to feed ourselves. And that's why I think all of us have a choice um, as believers. You know, are we, gonna, are, we gonna, are we going to eat like Adam and Eve, who, who um, stepped back from their dependence on God their Father to feed them and said, no, we're going to feed ourselves. We're going to eat what we want to eat. Are we going to eat like Christ, who remained completely dependent on God for for everything that he ate and even you know when you think about his um out in the out in the wilderness when he was out for 40 days and he didn't eat and and jesus was just out there he was you know he was starving but he would not eat and that was the first temptation that satan brought to him you know hey you're hungry god your father is not feeding you feed yourself turn these stones into bread and jesus would not do it he would not do it he remained dependent on his father to feed him so i think that it's very important that we sort of make this this choice and have this realization that every food that comes into our hands and that we that we're able to eat is a gift from God is you know that God is feeding us and that we bring that gratitude and that recognition to it. You know, it, it strikes me too that as we've seen America become less spiritual, church attendance down, uh, drifting away from some of our Judeo-Christian moorings that we've enjoyed in this nation historically, yeah. uh, we've become less spiritual 
and yet more of a gluttonous nation. Uh, oh. Obesity is significantly on the rise, and it almost makes you wonder as we draw the strong parallels that we see between spirituality and food from Scripture, this idea that we're eating more in an attempt, and a, a false one at that, to try and somehow satisfy yeah. ourselves, to, to satisfy a hunger, yeah. a hunger that in reality is only met from spiritual renewal. Uh, you know, and I think of the images as you were talking, uh, Jesus referring to himself as the bread of life, yes. uh, living water will I give to you to drink that you yeah. will thirst no more. Uh, isn't it a curious that it is, they, they joke oftentimes about, well, if you get sent to jail, they'll give you a basic meal of bread and water, thinking that as the, the fundamental necessities of life and that imagery that Christ paints of the connection between the two, I think is something that, that ought to cause us to pause and ponder. Oh, absolutely. And I, I couldn't agree with you more, Craig, that I think the reason we're seeing this, the um, just the continued rise of obesity, and it's so interesting that, you know, everyone in the country knows it's a problem, and yet we keep on getting fatter, and uh, we are trying to feed all of these other hungers, our spiritual hungers, our hunger for belonging, our hunger for community. We're trying to fill those hungers with food, and, um, and 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 it's true that God intends food to feed us in these other ways. But you can't do it without the Lord. You can't do it without the living bread and without the living water. And perhaps too, do you think, Leslie, that God wants us to see the two connected, so that when we sit down, much as a lot of Europeans do, that a meal becomes uh, something huge in and of itself. Uh, go to the home of an Italian family. Yeah. And and dinner is not just something, you know, tossed in front of you, which is wolfed down in 20 minutes and then back yeah. to the TV set. This is a three, four, sometimes five hour experience. Meals brought out, the, the, the meal brought out course by course. You linger over this and you 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 relish in the smells and the flavors and the textures. And, and you spend time talking and dialoguing with friends yeah. and family around the table. Yeah. It takes on an entirely different feel and, and a very spiritual one, I think. It really does. And the table, if you follow the word table through the scriptures, that's another fun word to follow. You'll see that table is always the symbol, both sort of the symbol and, and the reality of, it's, it is about communion and about relationship. And Jesus talks about talks about heaven when he when um when when he's at the last supper and he's breaking the bread and he's saying this is my body broken for you and we always concentrate on those verses but then a few verses down he says I'm, i confer on you a kingdom that my father has conferred on me and you will come and sit at my table and eat with me and this is the image of heaven of all of us that this is the ultimate belonging and the ultimate fulfillment of relationship and um, and we can do we can begin to do that now, just as you're saying that Europeans are so good at doing this, and and we have we have to slow down as Americans and um, and enjoy the time around the table as uh, a time of connecting deeply with one another and sitting there in 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 uh, communion with one another and communion with God out of gratitude for the gifts of family and friends and the gifts of the amazing food that he brings to our table. Our time today around the table visiting with Leslie Leland Fields, editor of a new book entitled The Spirit of Food, 34 Riders on Feasting and Fasting Toward God. The new book, by the way, published by Cascade and available at Amazon.com. We'll take a brief time out, allow you to sort of uh, clear the palate. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Leslie Leland Fields as this edition of Lifeline continues. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our special guest today. She is Leslie Leland Fields. She is the editor of a new book entitled The Spirit of Food, 34 Riders on Feasting and Fasting Toward God. We thought it would be appropriate to spend some time talking about this topic as it relates to the celebration that we have on Thanksgiving, family and friends gathered around that feast table um, in, in a sense of celebration and appreciation for the bounty and goodness that the Lord has shown toward us in the last year. And And at the same token, looking at this unique connection that we see throughout Scripture between Christ, our relationship with the Lord, and food. Speaking earlier about that great banquet table that we'll enjoy um, when that last trumpet sounds. Um, Jesus himself referring to himself as the bread of life, giving us living water. I'm reminded, too, Leslie, at Thanksgiving time, when my grandmother was still alive, um, and I've tried to continue the tradition um, as I've taken over hosting the, the annual family Thanksgiving gathering, to bring foods to the table that were representative of, of a number of, of sources. There was always bread as a gift from earth, a fish as a gift to us from the sea, yeah. uh, the turkey, of course, things of that sort. Uh, in an Italian household, you might uh, serve wine with the meal, uh, celebrating the, the, the fruit of the vine. Mm-hmm. Always that sense of trying to connect the big picture. Right. Is that a big part of what your writers do in this new book in terms of connecting the big picture between gathering together for a meal and the way that a meal is celebrated in light of our relationship with the Lord? Oh, absolutely. And they come at it from all different perspectives, which is really fun because some of the writers are... um Farmers. There's a woman who's a wheat and pig farmer in Canada and who's, who's talking about it from the perspective of a farmer. Other people are professional chefs. Others are just um, um, someone who grows tomatoes in his Cincinnati backyard, um, his suburban backyard. And so people are coming from lots of different perspectives and showing us lots of different ways to reconnect um, our food and our faith. And But all of them, what we're trying to do is is to return to God's intention for for meals and for feasting, which really was about commemoration, and, and that's what you're talking about. You said you would have, you know, a fish, something from the sea, and something from the vine, and and the Old Testament, you know, God instituted um, all of these feasts. I believe there are seven feasts that, that God um, instituted, and every one of them is intended to commemorate something, you know, that God has done, whether it's the Harvest Festival or whether it's the Passover commemorating the, the um, you know, the Angel of Death passing over um, the Israelites. But there's always this connection between um, real events and God's provision and the food on the table. And I think as Americans, I think we have, we just, I, I think we've forgotten, forgotten that connection and made it so much about the food. So I'm hoping that with this book that we can begin to to reconnect food and gratitude. The book is a fun one because you have each of the authors share some perspective, some tell some stories, then they eventually lead into to recipes. So it's, it's wonderful the way you, you've combined all of this. And, and interesting, I'm, I'm curious about where you gathered, how you selected these authors. Uh, we have stories in there and recipes, for example, from a relief worker's mobile kitchen that responded to uh, the hurricane down in, in uh, Louisiana, the uh, Katrina. Uh, I was struck to one of the writers the goddaughter of a woman who once, in, in running her, her little restaurant, who once cooked for John Dillinger. How fascinating. 
Yeah. You know, there's just so many fun stories of how this all came about. But some of the people... Um, a few people I knew already, some of the people I knew already, and I and I knew that they had really interesting, fascinating thoughts and, and about food and, and interesting food practices. And so I would ask them, uh, like Lucy Shaw, some people she's quite well known. I said, Lucy, would you write an essay on something about the connection between food and, and spirit in your life? And so I asked um, a number of uh, of people to, to write something for me, and then I found other essays um, in, in books. There are some real classic um, essays in there. One from Wendell Berry, another from Robert Farrar Capon. So just some uh, Andre debut, some really well known people who've written beautiful pieces about food. And then they were friends of friends. You know, someone say, "Well, I know this woman who used to be a baker in Manhattan, and she just up and packed everything up and moved to an organic goat farm in Maine. And she's a writer. <laughs> so it just was incredible how this network just spread out, and and I got all these amazing people to to write for the book. Uh, there are recipes of a kosher nature here that that take us back to the uh, the Talmud and uh, the way a, tr- a typical Jewish family would, would prepare a meal, which I found interesting, even vegetarian recipes. Yeah, yeah, there are a few people in the in the book who are vegetarian and who feel very much convicted by God at this point in their lives. That that's, you know, that's how... Um, they should eat, but you know the neat thing is there's when we start talking about food and then you start talking about um, what we eat as a Christian. Sometimes people can get really legalistic about it and start making rules and laws, and and there, there's none of that in here. You know, these are people writing beautifully from within their own food lives and giving us a picture really kind of illuminating some of the possibilities for for um, for eating you know in, in a more faithful way now you are based out of our our 50th state you're way up in Alaska Actually, we're the 49th 49th I'm sorry I, I, I moved you down a notch I, yeah, Hawaii, <laughs> that's right Hawaii is 50. Hawaii did come in afterwards. You're yeah. absolutely right. After after World War II, I have to keep my uh, my my numbers straight here in my head. So you're from our 49th state. Um, any any contributions in here from you? Yes. Um, I mean, I have an essay in here um, called "Making the Perfect Loaf of Bread," and um, I bread is a very goes very deep um, in, into my life and my life story. I grew up. Um, very, very poor, um, with a, a, a father who didn't work and a mother who with, with six children, so she wasn't really able to work. And bread was kind of what we lived on. We made our own bread. And um, this is back in the 60s. Okay, so I'm going to reveal my age here. But um, so we made 21 loaves of bread a week, and that was our that was our main source of food. We didn't have a lot of food, but we did have this bread. And so I grew up making bread, 21 loaves a week, and then and, and I've made all my own bread out at our fish camp. We um, live on an island off Kodiak Island in the summer where we commercial fish for salmon, and it's very remote and 
I make all of our own bread out there. So I'm really looking and weaving together my own life story with bread, together with um, all the biblical imagery of bread and the significance of bread. And I'm also asking the question about perfection. What is perfection and what is the value of our human making? Because there's a recipe out there now online. I'm sure all the bread makers out there know about it. It's called um, No Need Bread. You can make this wonderful bread without kneading it. I mean, it basically makes itself, you know, just by sitting overnight. And um, to me, it, it is a wonderful bread, but it's sort of tragic to think that you don't have to put your hands in the dough. You know, you don't get to lean your body into it. The, the bread is just not nearly as, as alive and as much of a creation from your own your own hands and your own body. Um, yeah. So I'm doing a lot of reflection about that. You know, and it's interesting. I, I think back again to my grandmother and the homemade bread and the smells that would come from the kitchen. Uh, and how marvelous those experiences were. Uh, again, this sense of, of celebration all the time. Even in Italian tradition, if someone purchases a new home, as you go for the housewarming, you bring a loaf of bread, a large stick of salami, and a bottle of wine for celebration, and that the, the home would always have uh, sustenance, there would always be a food and joy in that home. Uh, lots of just strong images that I think as we sit down and enjoy our meal on Thanksgiving, or even as folks go to prepare it, that this should be less so about the time it takes. And sometimes we get caught up in all the details mm-hmm. and, and don't really enjoy even the celebration that can be a part of the, the celebration that happens once you break the bread, once you sit down to feast. And that is just the process of the food preparation itself. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah. I, I, yes, that's what I want to say, too, is that we, we are so speed-focused and convenience and efficiency-focused, and I'm just as bad as everyone else on this. But it's a great time, especially for these special feasts, to just slow down and and enjoy the food that, that those yams that you are peeling or cutting up smell them feel them enjoy their incredible color and um, just uh, just marvel at, at at onions and garlic and all of these things that are God's idea God's creation and clearly God is a god of beauty and God is a god with really excellent taste buds because <laughs> he he clearly values um beauty and taste and just just the sensuality of all these foods so hopefully we've given you some uh, some more uh, forgive the pun food for thought as we head into thanksgiving and a delightful book that uh, while certainly timely for this season is a perennial that you'll enjoy throughout the year it's called the spirit of food 34 writers on feasting and fasting toward god replete with all kinds of really delicious recipes and the kind of spiritual perspective in here that i think uh, gets you refocused on the important things and all of the the parallels that we see drawn in scripture between uh, the sustenance we enjoy, uh, the food that is on our table, and our relationship with the Lord. The book published by Cascade Books, available through Amazon.com. You can also get more information at Leslie's website. It's simply Leslie-Leland-Fields.com. So just put a hyphen in there between LeslieLelandFields.com, and that'll take you right to her website. The Spirit of Food. Leslie Leland Fields, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you. It was a lot of fun to talk about this subject. Thank you. And uh, might I say, bon appetit. Oh, and, and, and the same to all your listeners. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Besieged and beset on all sides. Either you can't get a break or your life feels like it's in utter turmoil. Maybe your marriage is a disaster or your finances are in ruin. Perhaps your business or your job is simply falling apart. Or you're losing the battle against drugs, alcohol, depression. Well, whatever it might be, you feel like ancient Jerusalem, the city in ruin, the walls destroyed, and all seems hopeless. It did then for the Israelites, as it perhaps does now for you. Until Nehemiah entered the picture. Today, a look at practical insights from the book of Nehemiah, a new book published called Rebuilding What the Enemy Almost Destroyed. And with me today in studio is its author, the senior pastor of Destiny Christian Fellowship and speaker on the Destined for Victory broadcast heard weekday afternoons at 3.30 p.m. here on KFAX, Pastor Paul Shepard. Pastor Paul, great to see you again. Hey, Craig, it's always good to see you and to be here in the studio. This book, boy, um, you think about the title alone, And this could describe so many sets of circumstances, not only in terms of many layers in which we see the world today, politically, economically, militaristically. We see what's going on in our own nation, economically, morally, spiritually, and then down to our own lives and the individual turmoil and challenges we might be facing. And yet through it all, there's a very distinct message that is communicated in the historical account of the destruction of Jerusalem and Nehemiah entering the picture with a whole fresh new approach. Why the book? Absolutely. I am so glad that the Lord blessed me to preach this series a couple of years ago from the book of Nehemiah. And the more I studied, the richer it became because I'm understanding. In fact, the the older I get and the more years I put in in pastoral ministry, the more I realize that the Bible is for today like never before. It is timely and it is necessary. So as I studied For a sermon series a couple of years ago, I realized that this is not just for history. This is for current application. One of the most important statements Paul made um, is that he said things written aforetime are written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So when I uh, decided that this needed to become a book and I have a writing partner, James Werning, we sat down and began to take the sermon series and make a book out of it. We both saw how important it is for today's world, no matter whether you're talking about our individual lives our families, our governmental life, our life on the job, wherever it is, and certainly in our churches, we need to realize the enemy's job is to kill, steal, and destroy, but God is a God of restoration. That's why he raised up Nehemiah, and that's why I wrote this book, to help people practically apply its principles. One of the things that strikes me about your treatment of the story of Nehemiah and the destruction of Jerusalem that is so practical and apropos to where any believer is at today. And that is drawing the distinction between looking at circumstances and challenges, whatever they might be, a city in ruin or a life in ruin, with spiritual eyes versus our our natural eyes. And and so often the inclination is to say, wow, I mean, I I am in so much trouble here, financial debt and uh, taxes and all of that. There's just no way out. And we tend to look at things in the natural and... 
and there's an easy way to give the enemy victory through that sense of defeatism, isn't there, when we look at it that way? That's so true. And what we've got to realize is that when the Lord saved us, he saved us not just to take us to heaven, because if he wanted to do that, we'd get saved one moment and die the next. He saves us so that he can leave us in this real world with all of the fallenness around us, but he can help us not only experience restoration to do his will in the midst of the darkness in which we live, but he's going to make us restorers and people who can bring hope to those around us. Just like Nehemiah asked for a leave of absence from his job and traveled so that he could help build the city back to a place of security. God is doing that here and now in our lives, in our churches, in our ministries, wherever we will give him the right to lead. We're finding that God is an awesome restorer. Is this a challenge for believers today, maybe for the church in general, this sense that while we recognize that our hope lies in God's kingdom, that we are nevertheless in this world, but not to be of this world. And yet it's almost as if believers sort of try to have one foot in each, not understanding the distinction between being in it, but not of it. Yeah, we really have to become comfortable since we are not home yet. Christians are not home. The Bible is real clear. We are on our way home, but none of us have been there yet. And so the closest thing we can get to home is to walk in the spirit here and now to be led by the spirit and to be led by the principles and teachings of the word here and now, because in so doing, the Lord will help us experience his perfect will in an imperfect set of environments, and he will help us become restorers and those that bring hope to the folks around us. A lot of this sort of pivots then on the nature, the caliber and quality of our relationship with the Lord, doesn't it? And when you, when you speak of the notion of, of seeing these matters through spiritual eyes and not at natural eyes, that I think would suggest that there is a need then to be in tune with the Holy Spirit, so to speak. Absolutely. In the same way that Nehemiah was just sort of minding his business as the cupbearer of a king, a very prominent job I describe in the Bible. It wasn't, that's not being a butler. That was a very prominent position. That's more than just go fetch me some coffee. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. He meant something to that king. And yet the Lord put such a heavy burden on him that he asked for a leave of absence. One of the chapters in the book I talk about, if you're going to go, go big. And he asked for a leave of absence from a pagan king who under normal circumstances would have no inclination to allow him to go to Jerusalem of all places and and work. So we know it was a God thing. And in the same way, all of us who are listening today are people who are people of purpose. God has a plan for each of our lives, whether you're talking about your career, your family, God has a plan for all of us. And if we will follow the Holy Spirit, he will lead us into his purpose and destiny for our lives, and he'll give us the wisdom to fulfill it. So this is an 
necessarily the, the, the matter of, of approaching the condition of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah hears the story of what's going on there. And the city is in ruins. The walls have all been knocked down. The gates have been destroyed by fire. He hears the story of what's going on there. This is not necessarily a job that he signed up for it. But he's tremendously burdened by all of this, isn't he? Yes. One of the things I, I've often talked about, the ABCs of discovering God's will and the B in the way I lay it out is burdens. We have to pay attention to the things that grieve us deeply, not merely compassion. We're all people of compassion if we have the spirit of Christ in us. But beyond regular compassion, if you will, God every now and then puts a burden so deep in our hearts that we feel like I can't be fully satisfied until I do something to address this problem. And in Nehemiah's case, God put the burden of rebuilding that wall on him. In our lives, God gives us burdens about the things around us, whether it's in our family, in our neighborhood, in another community. You you can see a story on TV and the Lord might give you a humongous burden and you feel like I've got to do something to address that. I encourage people, pray about your burdens because there's probably an element of you fulfilling God's purpose in there. And so if you'll pray about it, the Lord will lead you and he'll bless you to fulfill it. In the flesh, using natural eyes, this set of circumstances as the report came to Nehemiah probably seemed pretty hopeless on the surface. I mean, there, there wasn't much left with. Uh, when we talk about rebuilding, sometimes we would like to infer that that means there's some sort of a resource available to us in which to rebuild. In this case, there really wasn't much. What is it, in your opinion, in, in being so familiar with the story of Nehemiah, Pastor Shepherd, that that communicated to Nehemiah that there was hope that this could actually be done. It came straight from the Lord because you're right. In the natural, there is no way a man who doesn't even live there anymore, he lives and serves in another kingdom altogether, but that he could come to town and make a difference. There's no natural reason to believe that at all. But we all know that with God, things don't always make sense, but he just has a way of making it come to pass. And so Nehemiah, as you said, with no resources and no reason to believe he could be successful, just followed this burden, prayed and fasted, and the Lord gave him extraordinary favor and supernatural anointing to be able to do. In fact, what what we learn as we study his life is that he was able to accomplish in less than two months what prior generations couldn't do in decades. That's because if God gets into a project, it goes from natural to supernatural. Pastor Paul Shepard with us today in studio. A look at his latest book, Rebuilding What the Enemy Almost Destroyed. The new book available, by the way, through the broadcast, Destined for Victory and uh, you can check that out online at pastorpaul.net. That's pastorpaul.net. The broadcast destined for victory weekday afternoons at 3.30 p.m. right here on KFAX. When we come back, looking at how Nehemiah served not one, but two kings, as our conversation with Pastor Paul Shepherd continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Welcome back to our conversation today in studio. Pleased to have with us Pastor Paul Shepard. He is, of course, Senior and Founding Pastor of Destiny Christian Fellowship in the city of Fremont. If you're new to town or visiting, like to check him out Sunday mornings. They have service times at both 8.30 and 11 a.m. Details available on the web at destinybayarea.org. That's destinybayarea.org. The new book, Rebuilding What the Enemy Almost Destroyed, Practical Insights from the Book of Nehemiah. I'm struck, Pastor Paul, by the notion that, as you articulated in the previous segment, while Nehemiah served as a cupbearer in the court of the kingdom, and it was pretty serious work. I mean, this is the guy that essentially would, uh, how should we say, take the bullet Absolutely. for the king if there was ever an attempt on the king's life. That's right. And yet, while he served a secular king, a pagan king, he never stopped serving the God of Israel. Boy, Craig, if if we don't come to understand today that no matter where you work, Google or Apple or whatever company, Macy's, I don't care where you work, yes, you have a secular job, and yes, God uses that to help you pay your bills, but when it really comes down to it, all of us work for the Lord. You might get your check from a company or a store or whatever the case is, but we work for the Lord. And the more we take up the responsibility to see ourselves as kingdom plants, wherever you are, you're a plant for God's kingdom. And the more you take up that work and fulfill that assignment, the more we'll have personal fulfillment. I believe that the way to experience personal fulfillment fulfillment is to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Trust God with all the details thereafter. So it's serving God really no matter where you've been placed or planted. Some folks I think get the erroneous idea that well in order to serve God you have to have the initials REV in front of your name <laughs> or you have to be up in a pulpit or on a radio station or or somehow be uniquely distinctively in quote unquote ministry. Correct. But in fact there are far more examples throughout scripture of people working in the quote unquote secular environment who never nevertheless serve God where they were planted. Absolutely. What we need to realize is that Ephesians 4 tells us God put some offices, so to speak, in the kingdom, things like apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But Paul said they are gifts to the church. And he said the purpose God put those people on the planet for was that we everyday believers might do the work of the ministry. So we need to realize your minister is only a coach. You're the one who plays the game on the court or on the field. And so the coach shouldn't get all of the attention. It is about enabling and preparing people for works of service. And the more we take up the ministry, when you go to work, you're going to, to a ministry event. When you go to do something in your community or on your school, uh, on your school campus, if you're a student, you are going to work for the King of Kings, and he is the one who's going to reward you. We were talking before the break about the challenges that came to Nehemiah's attention, learning of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, the challenges that were faced, literally the city had been destroyed, the walls were in ruin, leaving the people of Israel also very vulnerable. Very much and so. And Nehemiah gets word of all of this and suddenly he's got a plan in place and he goes to the king and says um, I need to take a little uh, leave of absence here because <laughs> <laughs> yep. God is calling me to do another work and as you were mentioning 
this would seem in the natural through through the flesh to be absolutely impossible insurmountable it, it, it just why even bother sort of scenario and yet nehemiah pressed on and one of the distinctions that you call out inside the book rebuilding what the enemy almost destroyed is the distinction of the empowerment that nehemiah had because he was Anointed. Yes. That seems for a lot of believers in the pews to be kind of a highfalutin word. That's right. Uh, break it down and help us understand. When we talk about God's anointing, what exactly is that? And to whom does he distribute that anointing? I believe uh, the anointing is best understood this way. The anointing is God's presence and power sent to accomplish a specific purpose. So when we are anointed, we're simply saying, Lord, you're here. I'm believing you to empower me so that I can do what you want me to do in this particular setting or environment. That's the anointing. Nothing more, nothing less. It doesn't make you spooky. It doesn't make you weird. It only makes you efficient and able to accomplish whatever God wants you to do in any particular environment. So many believers have that that definition so backwards, a lot of churches today, the anointing means if, if they say, for example, after church on Sunday, boy, pastor was really anointed. That means that he got through the sermon in less than an hour. <laughs> but the anointing then, as you're suggesting, is something that's not held exclusively for some sort of uniquely spiritual work, preaching God's word, evangelizing. But in fact, God can bring in places anointed upon us no matter where we're at. It really is about the matter of the attitude of our heart and our, our ability to be available and to rely on him then. It is. That's the key to it. If we will just wake up every day and say, Lord, go with me as I go to work, as I go to school, as I drive these freeways and and streets, as I interact with people, you can be anointed to smile. You can be anointed to give someone a word of encouragement. The Lord can anoint you to walk up to someone you don't even know and, and just say something to them. You don't know what it will mean to them, but when you just obey the prompting you have, in some cases, you'll see them break out into tears and they say, oh, my goodness, how did you know what I was going through? I've seen that happen. I've experienced it myself. And we need to believe God that every day in any circumstance, he will anoint you to fulfill his purpose. One of the points that you make in the book, I think, is an important one that perhaps Christians don't really fully have a, an entire grasp on sometimes. We run into circumstances where we're facing challenges maybe in our marriage relationship or with the kids or at work or with our finances, whatever it might be. And and we look at it and say, well, the enemy's just fighting us. <laughs> and, and that may very well be true. But there's also a dynamic here at play that I want to have you spend some time helping us better understand, and that is God, as he did in the case of Israel, um, was very clear about his blessing. He basically said, if you obey me, I will bless you greatly, but if you disobey me, I'm going to scatter you to the ends of the earth. There is a blessing that God is offering, but it's a conditional one. It is, and we have to learn that with obedience 
comes the best path to all of the blessings God wants to place in our lives. But as was the case with Israel, sometimes it is the case with us as present day followers of Christ, which is we will get into areas of disobedience. Uh, I certainly know what that's like, and so do uh, many of those listening to us today. We cannot testify that we've always been correct, always done the right thing. In fact, the truth be told, some of us have made our biggest blunders after accepting Christ, after being involved in kingdom living. And while that is true, Here's the good news and one of the incentives for writing this book. When you have had destruction take place, and when I talk about the enemy, I always think of the enemy as threefold, not onefold. A lot of people think enemy means Satan. But the truth of the matter is the Bible shows us that we have three enemies we all face. The world, which its system is against the kingdom of God. The flesh, which I call the enemy in a me. And then the devil. And so when you think about the world, the flesh and the devil and how sometimes they've impacted us to the point where we have gotten way out of God's will. God says, I'm not finished with you. Just like he wasn't finished with Israel. God is not finished with us when we fail. I know what it is to fail. I know what it is to repent. I know what it is to be chastened by God. But I have found God to be an incredible restorer. God is the best recycler in the universe. He knows how to take us no matter where we are and rebuild us and restore us and make us effective in doing his will. Today, a look at rebuilding what the enemy almost destroyed. A new book written by Pastor Paul Shepard. Information, by the way, about the book and Pastor Paul's ministry by going to PastorPaul.net. That's PastorPaul.net. You can also order the book online through that website. Absolutely. And for those that like to do electronic reading, just go to Amazon or any of those places on the web and you can download it to your e-readers. Excellent. All right. We'll take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation more of our look at rebuilding what the enemy almost destroyed. Practical insights from the book of Nehemiah by Pastor Paul Shepard. Back with more right after this. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 